Mac Power Users, Episode 93, Workflows with Fraser Spears. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks. Along with me is Katie Floyd. Hi, Katie. Hey, David. And joined with us today is Fraser Spears. Fraser, you know, you have been on my list to get on this show for so very long. Thank you for coming in and joining the show. It's absolutely a pleasure, David. Yeah. You know, we, I've always felt in my mind, I need somebody here who can talk about education. And you are the man for education. So they tell me. Yeah, you're speaking, you're speaking in Chicago, I saw later this mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. And, yep. um, well, you know, just for people who don't know who you are, why don't we just take a moment and talk about it? Uh, you, you have a blog at Fraser Spears. Mm-hmm. It's called, it's actually at spears.org, S P E I R S. Uh, but more importantly, you are uh, running the uh, the program. What's the name of your school again? Uh, the school I work at is called Cedars School of Excellence, uh, and it's based in Greenock, which is a town just to the west of Glasgow in Scotland. Yeah, and it's a very forward-thinking school. I mean, they were one of the very first to deploy uh, Macs and then iPads to all their students, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the school is a fairly new school. Uh, it, was, it was started in 1999. Uh, and back then, uh, to give you a bit of ancient history on Max, um, I, I set up the first uh, school network there. So in '99, you know, most schools were just pushing about a, a standalone PC on a trolley. And at that time, we had a, a blue and white G3 Mac server, if you remember those, yeah. which we paid four and a half thousand pounds for at the time. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, Ouch. Yeah. Uh, and four of the colored iMacs. So we had we had I think what was one of the first um, common desktop login systems around uh, this area, and that was running macOS 10 Server 1.0. I mean, it had probably been out about two months before we opened the school, and it was a crazy choice to go there. But we we went there, um, and that was pretty successful for us. And then I've kind of uh, worked in the school in a sort of voluntary capacity for quite a while, and then was hired on in 2006. And. And what I, it's fascinating to me is you share all these experiences while this, and the school is, it's elementary level, correct? Or does it go through high school? Yeah, the school's actually a straight through school. So we have grades K through 12 in the one building yeah. all the way through. So, yeah. so as a result, you have been applying all this technology for these kids and mm-hmm. sharing that experience with everyone, in particular with regard to Apple technologies. And in particular, since the iPad came out, you've been at the forefront of that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was really, I mean, I, I don't have a long history as being a kind of ed tech blogger. I mean, I, I've i been doing this you know, for about 10 years for the school and mostly been blogging about software development and, and other things that I've been doing. And uh, it was really in, in 2010 when we were doing the iPad project, I, I thought, well, if I'm doing this, I should probably write down what I'm doing in case I have to do it again. And then the second thing I thought was maybe, well, I should just write it on my blog. Yeah. And and really, that was my grand master plan for becoming a famous blogger was uh, maybe I should just write this down in case I need it in the future. <laughs> uh, and I had no notion that what was going to happen to me uh, was going to happen. That was just, it's all been a real surprise. Well, I mean, there's, there's lots of schools out there surfing your wake. I, I know of several people mm-hmm. who follow what you do uh, with the schools out here in the U.S. And like just real basic stuff. I mean, one of the things that you talked about was how the iPad is so much easier for schools in terms of troubleshooting because there's only a few steps to take with an iPad. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you can write down the iPad troubleshooting guide in a single tweet, which is basically restart it, restore it, and then take it to the Apple Store. Yeah. <laughs> <There's not much. laughs> That's it. <laughs> well, I would also add sometimes if you delete the app and reinstall it, sometimes. Yeah, that can sometimes help, too. Yeah. Particularly this week. And and so you've got these, is it one iPad per student? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're a full uh, one-to-one school. So uh, the, the kind of claim to fame, if you like, is, is that we were the world's first whole school one-to-one iPad program. The, and the school is small, right, just so people understand. Um, the, the school role this year is going to be 120 students. And we're that's partly because we're quite a new school and it obviously takes time to kind of fill the pipe of a school when you start one. But also um, our building is capped at a certain size and um, we don't have room to take any more students at this point uh, until we can find an extra building to grow into. So give us a general overview of, of what, the iPads in your schools are doing so we can have an idea of, of the types of things that you're managing. Obviously you've got kids from probably about five years old to, to about mm-hmm. 18 years old that are, are using yep. this along with their teachers. W- what are they doing with their iPads? What have you had to okay. set these up to do? Yeah. So well, firstly, just let me get the, we always have to get the terminology straight when we're talking to a worldwide audience about education. In okay. Scotland, there's two, there's two phases of education. There's primary education, which is the first seven years. Okay. Uh, our five years old, uh, what Americans call kindergarten is what we call primary one. And then first grade is our primary two and so on. So um, primary one through seven, uh, is in the primary department and then there's six years of secondary education which we call secondary one through secondary six and then children would typically leave the school and go to either college or university depending um so in primary one so five years old uh, and upwards we we've deployed the ipad for everybody and it's the same device it's a 16 gig um wi-fi ipad one which is what we're, we're still on the ipad one um we'll talk about that as mm-hmm. well but we deployed it in, in basically two different sections. There's a deployment for the secondary kids, and they have certain applications, and then the primary kids have a different set of applications. And when we started this back in 2010, we thought, well, we anticipated that younger, very young children would use the iPad as a kind of, I don't want to say a toy, but as, as a tool. You know, they, they, It would really not matter too much whether it was their iPad or somebody else's. It would just be a set of apps they were going to you know, work through and, and play with and so on. Uh, and then we thought that further up the school, that was going to change over to be much more productivity-based the way you and I would use an iPad. And, and that's turned out to be true, except that we, the one thing we got really wrong was where we guessed that crossover point was going to be. So we thought it would be sort of um, primary five, primary six, kind of stage and it turns out the answer is actually primary two you know first grade second grade kind of area and what we see is that for five five-year-olds they very much you know they play tokaboka apps and so on little um, games together and things but then just one year up from that the kids are starting to create their own stuff on the ipad and that's really at the heart of the philosophy of our deployment is that it's, it's not a textbook Right, uh, and we can certainly talk about the attitude vis-a-vis textbooks and and um, applications on the iPad, but we very much look at the iPad as a tool for expressing both creativity, but also just expressing your understanding. So, if I if I'm teaching about some science topic, let's say the planets, then 
one of the ways that I can assess that children have understood what I've taught is that I can have them express their understanding through various creative tasks on the device or, you know, off the device as well. Don't get me wrong. It's not, uh, we're not paperless school in that sense, but that's the way we look at the iPad rather than just a way to deliver content. You know, it's, it's very popular on the internet every three or four months to write a post, how the iPad is a consumption device only. Mm. And it gets a lot of hits and I'm sure if you make, you know, business that runs on hits, it's a great, it's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. But I just can't get over that. It seems to me like the idea that when people write that is, it's an app, it's a device that does not have Microsoft Word. Therefore, it is not a creation device. And it ignores so much you can do with it. I mean, you can write music. You can, I've written books on the iPad. I mean, it's. Mm-hmm. I think it's very uh, conducive to creativity. Yeah, I, I think you have to go back... Uh, one thing I like to do in my copious spare time, which is none, um, is to go back and look at watch old keynote presentations again. And every so often, I go back and I watch, you know, the iPhone presentation, which was just a masterpiece uh, of of communication, and the iPad presentation as well. And I often talk about this when I give presentations to schools and to conferences. That when you look at the iPad presentation, what what you see there is a very, very clever way of showing that um, we're taking the phone technology, but we're, you see them bringing the phone technology up to a larger size, but then the masterpiece was having keynote and pages and numbers available on day one. Because what that showed was that there was desktop class software coming down to this mobile size. So this was desktop software going mobile, if you like. And to me, that was that was the moment when I saw Phil Schiller sit down and demo those apps. Um, I just realized, well, that is that's exactly the application we're looking for, the, or the device we're looking for, uh, because yes, it's, it's the ease of use of the phone and the portability and the battery life and everything, but with the power of desktop applications possible in that. And that was the point in, in that keynote where I really understood that Apple had much bigger ambitions for this device than just. Uh, a much bigger and easier to use phone. Yeah, I mean, they from the get go, it was writing uh, spreadsheets and presentations, and I think every iPad announcement since then has expanded on that theme. I mean, the the second mm-hmm. iPad it was about music, and the third iPad it was about photography. Mm-hmm. They absolutely they continue to push that theme that you can do more on this than just watch movies. So, yeah. so what are the apps that you give to these kids when they, I guess, let's start, I guess, at the beginning and then as they get older, what are the, what are the main mm-hmm. apps you use to run the school? So uh, it, it definitely varies across the, the primary and the secondary department. Um, there are some applications that we have found have, app, have uses um, at every single level in the school. And examples of that you know, include Keynote. Right? Keynote is useful everywhere. Uh, pages to a certain extent, but maybe not right down at, at primary one where they don't really know how to spell and write yet. Um, but broadly speaking, from primary two, three upwards, we're, we're seeing them use very much similar applications to you and I would use. I would say the core applications are maybe uh, Pages and Keynote, not Numbers actually, Pages and Keynote, um, I thought HD, the mind mapping application, which is fantastic, and, and we use that everywhere, you know, all the way up to staff planning that app gets used. Okay, so now you um, made a mistake because you mentioned I thought HD, and I love that app. Yeah. 
we're going to have a conversation now. Yeah. yeah. Um, we found that to be unbelievably powerful. People email me all the time saying, you know, which Mac app should I buy for mind mapping? And I write back and say, if you own an iPad, don't buy any Mac app. Buy iThoughts HD. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's a wonderful application. And um, we, one of my teachers has actually kind of struck up a bit of a friendship with a developer of, of that app. And they've, spent a lot of time talking about different ways that it can be enhanced and things, you know, the feature that had, um, uh, that brought images into the application so you can put an image in a node. Uh, that was certainly one of our requests. I don't know if it, it wasn't done for us, but it was something we were very keen to see as well. Yeah, well, that app started out being really good at capturing information quickly and it's very user-friendly. Mm-hmm. It's like he gets the iPad interface. Yeah. Um, but it was never very pretty. And it seems like the last six months he spent a lot of time making it pretty and, you know, putting in like the solarized color scheme. And, and there's a lot of stuff mm. in there now that I really like that it's starting to look better. Yeah, no, it, it's, and that's, this is a much broader theme than just I thoughts, but I'm in an interesting position now that I can kind of, I've, I've looked very carefully at the evolution of software on the iPad over the two years, you know, we've, cause you, when you teach these things, you've got to really know them yourself. And, um, you know, I've been into minute details about exactly how you do X, Y, and Z in certain applications. Um, and it, it's been interesting to see just over the, over the past couple of years that just how powerful the software has become. I mean, we, we started with Keynote 1.0 uh, on, on the first day. And to see where Keynote is now in terms of not just its features, yes, its features, but also just the fluidity with which you can move through the interface. There's been all kinds of little corners have just been shaved off and, and so on. And it's really now, it's the way I prefer to build presentations when I can. How do the kids, how do the kids use Keynote? Um, like, for instance, when you said they start Keynote, like at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We made a strategic decision about four years ago that... We looked at the the suite of office applications that people use, and we recognized that word processing was on the way out. Because looking at it, um, the ability to master a word processor is kind of, um, we thought it was a, a, a skill that didn't have a big future. Because if you think about what a word processor is, it's the act of laying out text to print out on a piece of paper. Yeah. Right, and I don't think you know the whole the whole concept of the application and everything is based around a piece of paper. Um, and we thought, well, in the end of the day, that's a secretarial level skill. Whereas presentation and persuasion and communication is a CEO level skill. Right. Right. So we this is before the iPad. We decided that we want we wanted to put our big focus in terms of what do we major on in the office suite, if you like, to be in presentations. And not just on the, the act of making a fancy slide deck, but actually performing the presentation and, and delivering the presentation. Um, and we have uh, spent a lot of time on that over the years. Uh, and I think if you came to our school and saw some of our kids giving presentations, you would be very impressed. I'm so jealous. I mean, <laughs> it sounds so forward-thinking. Yeah, it's it's one of these things. Um, we spend a lot of time thinking about the future, and you got to realize just how how far ahead you have to think in education, because quite often you end up in education where you're you're sort of fighting the last battle, whereas you've got to be fighting a much a longer game than that. 
you know, so children who start school today are, are leaving school in 2025. Yeah. You know, 2026. And how, how can I, how can I plan the, the world in which they are going to come out of school and work in on the basis of, you know, they've got to use today's version of Microsoft office because they're graduating in 2026. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's just not, I, I don't feel that I can hold, I can constrain what I want to do in the school um, just because that's the way the outside world is right now. I want to look at the way the outside world is going and kind of anticipate that rather than react to it much years after the fact. You see some curriculum developments, it's 10 years after it happened that it comes into the curriculum. You know? Yeah, nuts and bolts of that. So when they, they give a presentation in their class, it's off their iPad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, yeah. Every, everything is on the iPad. And then, Absolutely. And do they have like monitors in the class, or the HDMI, or how do they get it on the screen? At the moment, most of our classrooms are still using VGA projectors. Okay. Um, we've got two classrooms which have uh, flat screen TVs with forty inch Sony televisions, um, an Apple TV on them. We don't have that everywhere yet because our projectors aren't all um, coming up for replacement yet. So we're keeping those going. Um, but we've kind of learned over the past year of using those that you, you need to very, be very careful about the size of the television versus the size of the room. So I teach in a very big classroom in the school and my 40 inch TV isn't big enough, uh, so that everybody can see it. So we're going to swap that for a projector this year and put the, the TV into a smaller classroom and so on. But I think over time, as the price of those larger TVs comes down, it's a big, it's an easier option for a lot of schools. Yeah, it's, sure. it's, it's really convenient. I mean, I, I'm doing that at yeah. my work, and now I'm, I am doing it on the road too. I'm taking an Apple Airport Express and an Apple TV, mm-hmm. and uh, just mm-hmm. creating my own network, um, and doing some presentation work that way. It took a little bit of kind of it was like that scene in Indiana Jones uh, where he has to make the leap of faith, you know. <laughs> I think it's the yeah. third movie, you know, because everything in my life comes back to Star Wars and Indiana Jones. But the, uh, well, indeed, yeah, he has to uh, step off the cliff. You feel like that the first time you do a presentation and you don't have a cord attaching your iPad. Yeah, yeah. I guess the whole story of our past couple of years has been a big leap of faith because when we started with the iPad, all we had was you know the built-in apps plus iWork mm-hmm. and, and a couple of things that had been built for it. And to see the way that the platform has grown over those past two years has been very gratifying and kind of validated the decision that we made. Um, and we'll, we can talk, come back to this as well, that the rate of use of the Macs in our school has just fallen off a cliff. Mm-hmm. Uh, incredibly dramatic change. And you know that step of faith, but now looking at it two years on, I don't know that I can go back to the board and ask for a refresh of our Macs. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think I can justify that money. Yeah, it well, really is think, a trucks and cars situation at this point. Yeah, I would yeah. think individuals would tell you that too. That the use of their Macs has gone down, and maybe not been eliminated, but with the use of their iPads. Mm-hmm. You know, I know my dad has talked about giving his laptop to my brother, who's who's leaving town and going off for a new job, because he doesn't use his laptop anymore because he's got his uh, iMac desktop and his and his iPad and. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, and Mac OS ten is my is my workday operating system. You know, I, I never touch it on the weekends. Right. So, are you running into uh, you know any technical barriers using the the first gen's hardware? I know you mentioned that sometimes you're using Apple TVs, and I know that was one of the reasons mm-hmm. why I got rid of my first gen iPad is because the AirPlay functionality on it was limited when when yeah. going to an Apple TV. Yeah, that's the big one. I mean, we we signed a three year lease in 2010. We signed a three year lease for a whole school set of iPad One. Right. 
and I, I was really aware at that point that I wasn't totally convinced that I, the lifespan of an iOS device at that early in its life cycle was going to be three years. But it's been remarkable how um, how well it's held up. I thought we would be more frustrated with it sooner than we have been. I think people are starting to get a bit frustrated now because, uh, you know, people have seen faster devices now. They've seen the iPad 3 and they've seen the iPhone 4S and so on. And going back to an iPad 1 does feel slow. It feels jarringly slow for, for me when I'm holding a 3 in my hands and I go and pick up a child's iPad 1. Um, but in terms of actual technical limitations, not being able to do very much via AirPlay, is one of them. Mm-hmm. Although we don't have enough Apple TVs in the school for that to be a real deal breaker at the moment. Um, but it will be very nice to have that new capability when we get it. The The big one is people really would like a camera on the device. Uh, and this is a thing that um, is a bit of a two, two-edged sword um, in education where bringing cameras into the classroom can just free up so much creativity. It's unbelievable. But at the same time, there are, of course, um, concerns about privacy and, sure. and, and uh, security and so on. And cheating. Um, and cheating to a certain extent as well. Yeah, that's that's an, even another conversation to have. We, we've done a couple of exams uh, on the iPad as well. But yeah, the camera thing is, is something everybody wants, I know, because it, it just smooths out a lot of things. you know. And it's not even that we want to do photography with the iPad as much as we want to just capture data. And when we get into talking about my workflow, um, we'll, we'll see that a lot of um, I make a lot of use of, of uh, the camera in my uh, phone to capture data. Even just you know, where did I park my car? What hotel room am I in? So on, so on. Um, so I think a lot of teachers are looking forward to that. And there are a couple of apps that we can't have because they don't run in the first iPad. The notable ones being iMovie and iPhoto. Right, and both of which we would love to use, but we can at the moment. We're seeing now that iOS six isn't going to run on the original iPad. Yeah, that's that's we, we finally kind of reached the end of the road on the first device, and that's not. I was sort of anticipating that happening. Uh, I assumed the worst with that, but you know, at the end of the day, we have had three major releases of of the operating system on the same hardware, and in the current world that we live in with mobile devices, that's. A pretty good track record. Yeah, it's better than the uh, Windows Phone 7 people got. Yeah, yeah. um, They got thrown under the bus. But um, iOS 5 has been fine for us. And um, I mean, realistically speaking, iOS 6 is not going to be out till October time. We wouldn't be updating our iOS to iOS 6 in the middle of the school term anyway. So maybe it would be Christmas at the earliest before we could do that. And then, you know, what, what do we end up with? We six, you know, six months of the term, maybe a bit less, where we're on older, older software. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then next summer, we're going to get a refresh. So it's just, you know, the very tail end of the lease. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's fine. Some well, other logistic issues I was just curious about, and then we can move on to another topic. But how do mm-hmm. you manage 120 plus iPads? Um, and and then lots and lots of chewing gum and bailing wire, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> duct tape, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um did you have a second part you wanted to mention there? Or? Well, I mean, do you do you when they when they all sink in, are you able to remotely push out? I mean, I know there's some tools for administrators and we've never really talked about yeah. those on the show, but are you are are they all configured the same way? Do you have uh primary one maybe configured one way, or can the can the teachers actually get down to configure their specific classrooms mm-hmm. iPads a certain way, or is it all managed more at the administrative level? Yeah. What I'm going to describe to you is a massive hack. 
Okay. Um, but I will describe to you in excruciating detail, which is that um, you got to bear in mind that our, our deployment design, what I'm about to describe to you, comes from the days of iOS 3.2, where there was no mobile device management APIs on the device or anything like that. So what we've got is um, every classroom in the school has an iMac, um, and those iMacs are actually my old computing lab split up and scattered to the, the four winds. Okay. But each of each, everybody's got one of those machines now. Um, so that's like the sync station for that class. Kids in that class will sync their iPad to that computer. On that, for each classroom, there is one um, common iTunes library for those iPads. So there's maybe between there's between ten and twenty five pupils in a class in our school, and um, all the kids will sync their iPad to that single library. So they all get the same apps. Basically, they're all looking at the same library, and each of those computers is grouped into one of five groups. Um, so there's, there's a primary group and there's a lower secondary group and there's an upper secondary group. Um, and those are authorized in three different Apple IDs for those three groups. Yeah. Now, I am totally aware, and I'm going to confess right now, that that's not, um, that's not exactly in a strict interpretation of the T and Cs for iTunes. Sure. Right? But the problem I have or I had and continue to have in the UK is that um, there's no there's no way to buy 110 copies of an iOS app. Now in the US there's a thing called the volume purchase program which does enable you to do that. You can essentially um, bulk purchase uh, gift codes for an app. But having tried this various times, what happens if you try and buy or and not even buy but gift yourself multiple copies of an app, what happens there is that eventually iTunes, the iTunes store will block your account yeah. because you're, you're buying hundreds of copies of the same app. It looks like fraud. Yeah. Well, they think uh, and you're trying they're... to manipulate yeah. the ratings or something, or, or I guess exactly. it just be straight yeah. fraud. Yeah. 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 Or, or if iTunes don't stop you, then your credit card will stop you. Um, and it's, it's essentially technically impossible to, to buy that number of devices. So I was in the situation where I just had to make something work and I did make it work. But, you know, in the future, we are going to change this to once we do get the right tools. And Apple has announced that volume purchase is a coming soon, quote, quote, uh, to the UK. So once we do that, um, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to look at a much uh, more modern model, which incorporates iCloud and um, things like that, and Apple Configurator, which is the new tool for managing iPads. I mean, you were really out there on the ledge at the beginning. Oh, it, I'm, I'm I'm amazed that it worked as well as it did, and I'm amazed that it's still holding together, to be honest. I thought it would have fallen apart long before this. Then, so, but, so just like yeah. logistically, the kids turning in their papers, do they do that through syncing it, or do they email it to the teacher? Yeah, that's all by email. Yeah. So our email backend system is Google Apps for Education. Well, it's actually Google Apps. We had it. We've had that for years and years and years, even before it was for education. Uh, I think we set that up in '05, uh, and all the kids have got their own individual email address. And that was one of the outcomes of, of deploying the iPad all the way down to five-year-olds. Was that we found that email became the backbone of data transfer to and from the device. Yeah. Um, so that the five-year-olds have got email, and that was initially just so they could like email their teacher a, pic- a picture they'd drawn or something. But what we're finding now is that our primary one teacher has decided to start teaching the kids how to do email. And I, as the computing teacher for later years, I'm going, well, you just taught them part of my curriculum. <laughs> you know. So um, what we're seeing is that skills are just being pushed further and further down the school all the time uh, to the point where the kids coming out of primary one are, are more sophisticated than kids who were leaving um, later years, a few years back. 
Well, I mean, just the fact that these kids are doing I Thoughts HD in school, I think that's amazing because it's so, it's just such a great idea. Yeah, I mean, it was a wee bit kind of necessity being the mother of invention with some of that stuff because, like, our, our, a guy called Owen Atkinson, who's our primary three and four teacher, he was he was talking to me and he was saying, well, well I want to teach creative writing with the iPad. What, what, where's the creative writing app? And I was kind of like, well, I don't think there is one. You know, all we've got is pages and keynote and numbers and a couple other things. Um, so, it, you know, we didn't kind of pursue that. And, and then a couple of weeks later, I went into his classroom. He's like, well, look what we figured out here. And he was showing me that he his approach had been to have the kids um, structure their thoughts in iThoughts first and then use that to then scaffold their writing task afterwards. So they were producing both a mind map and a, a piece of written work as well. Uh, and he was one of the guys who kind of first figured out this multi-app workflow. Uh, and he kind of showed me that kids were comfortable with that. Because I was kind of thinking in a very old-fashioned way, to be honest, which was that oh, you need, you need to kind of have a, an environment to do that kind of work. And he showed me, no, the kids are perfectly happy to switch between a couple of apps. Yeah. And that was before multitasking and gestures and all that kind of stuff. That was just, you know, the old-fashioned way of doing it. And the kids were adapting to that just fine. Yeah, and I thought and that we've got does a great job stuff, of exporting yeah. that data over yeah. to whatever format you need it. Absolutely. My, uh, you know, I'm trying to do the same with my daughters. I've got a 15 and a 10 year old, and I'm trying to get them into using iThoughts HD, and it's it's not really sticking. You know, they're not as nerdy about this stuff as I am, mm-hmm. and more importantly, there was no support for it at their school. You know, I think having it yeah. in the school yeah. makes all the difference. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting topic as well because one of the things we're seeing is is children who leave our school and go to another school now. Um, a lot of those parents are buying those kids their own iPad before they go. Yeah. yeah. And it's a, kind of a problem for me, actually, because they come to me and they go, how can you transfer all the stuff from her iPad to, my, to her, from her school iPad to her new one? You know, I'm kind of like, oh, that's not all that easy, given the way you set up the Apple IDs. Yeah. That's another reason for moving to iCloud in the future is that when the child leaves the school, they can take their iCloud ID with them yeah. mm-hmm. and all their data with them, and they can just restore to a new iPad when they leave the school. Yeah. Um, are you going to, when you implement this iCloud system, are you going to, go away from Google or are you just going to do everything through I, iCloud or are you going to stick with Google at the same time? Um, no, uh, Google Apps is going to remain our back end for, for email. Yeah. yeah. Um, we, we don't do a lot else with Google Apps. We don't make a big use of Docs. We, we use Docs a little bit for for a couple of things, um, collaborative planning for teachers and so on, but not very much because it doesn't work well at all in the iCloud. Yeah, it's not very iPad friendly, um, although it's better. Yeah. They just announced, I, I believe you have to use the Google Chrome browser on the iPad, but I believe you can now edit uh, Google Documents on the iPad. Oh, okay. I, I must look into I, that. I haven't tested it yet, so I'm kind of, uh, I'm out on my own ledge right now. Hey, before did, we continue, I did just though, start using the, the uh, Chrome browser. It's pretty good. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. Um, yeah. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. It would be nice if Apple need put away and to make it the default. I mean, I think when you're starting to get the, that level or that caliber browser, I think people should get a choice. But I don't yeah, know. Good, if, I think so. Good luck yeah. with that. Well, I, I don't know if it's even possible. Maybe it's unreasonable to think they would because it's, I think it might be really, it might be a very difficult thing to do because all that stuff is so built into the OS that just, you know, putting a single switch to throw the default browser may not be as easy as, as a lot of us think it is. But Either way, before we go, we got to keep the lights on. So let's talk we about do. our first sponsor here, Hover. And Hover is a domain registration made simple. And the, the whole business is built around a real simple plan. 
you know, let's not bring in our customers and try and throw all these funny, you know, flash ads and uh, women and all this other stuff at them. Let's just sell people a domain name and make it really easy for them to buy it. And wait, wait a minute, David, you're saying we're actually going to give people what they want for a reasonable price and not hassle them about it? That's exactly what I'm saying. And what uh, a novel concept. Yeah. And boy, I, I love Hover. I started using them long before they ever sponsored our show. I've got Max Sparky and all the other domains I own. When I seem to collect them, um, bought through Hover. My, it's you know my wife, who's not a geek, is now buying domains. You know that never would have happened through any of the other services because they, uh, you know, there it's just it was just it was like running the gauntlet to buy a domain. And not only do you can you buy a domain, you can also run your email service through it. I mean. Uh, and all my personal email for maxparky.com and the field guides and that stuff is run through Hover. It's it's just, I'm so pleased to be part of this service because they finally got it right. They made it really easy for me to buy this stuff and they take excellent care of me. Yeah. When I transferred my domain names over to Hover from the other guys, uh, there was a little bit of a hiccup and it turned out to be the other guys were just having this mass exodus of domain names being transferred because of a little issue that they had. Um, and domain names were coming over and they were actually stopping the transfers. So I, I picked up the phone and I called Hover and I said, can you help me? And they picked up on the first ring. I got a great guy, Mike, who walked me through the process. It turns out I had done nothing wrong. But he said, you know what? Y- you called us. We're going to make this our problem. And we're going to take care of it. And you don't have to worry about anything else. And he said, I've got you from here. You're covered. And he took care of it. And he called me back later. And he said, just want to let you know where we got it moving. Everything's going to be fine. You should be in a confirmation email from us later saying that everything is running smooth. And that's what I love about Hover is you can go in and you can do all these these technical and geeky things yourself and you can manage your own DNS to some degree and you can do your own forwards and you can register your own domains and you can transfer your own domains and they've got great tutorials and great guides to show you exactly how to do that. But if you don't want to do that, all you have to do is pick up the phone and say, hey, Mike, this is what I want to do. And they'll take care of it for you. Yeah, it's 15 bucks a year and that includes uh, no charge for who is privacy. So you know, you don't want everybody knowing where you live just because you register a domain name. And uh, I always had to pay for it separately before. Now it's just part of the deal. And I guess the way to summarize Hover really is where most domain services work against you. You know, it seems like the whole thing is some kind of trick to get more money out of you. Uh, Hover really works with you. And they try and get your domains registered for you, take good care of you. They don't do hosting, which means they're not going to try and upsell you on a bunch of other stuff you don't need. And uh, and if you need your email, they'll do that too. It's a great company, and you get ten percent off if you use the MPU discount code. Yeah, it's actually Mac Power Users is the full discount code. So you can go to hover.com/slash/MacPowerUsers. You can click the link on our website or in our show notes, or you can just type in the coupon code MacPowerUsers when you check out. They'll take care of your discount, and that's good on pretty much anything that that Hover will sell you. So you can do that for transfers. We should mention that if you transfer your domain, you don't have to worry about losing any time. So even if you've got time left on the domain that you're transferring in, Hover will go ahead and extend your registration by whichever time period you uh, you buy. So you don't have to. To, to worry about that, go ahead and get them transferred now. Uh, so Mac, uh, hover.com slash users or use users as the coupon code at checkout. And we thank Hover for their kind support of our show. You know, one point I'd add about Hover is I got an email from a, a listener who just did the transition, and she said the big thing holding her up was fear. You know, I mean, if hmm. you have a domain, you're afraid if you start messing around with it, right, that it's going to Oh, it's got to work. Yeah, and, and these guys, 
I've never heard of anyone having a problem with the transfer. It's just, it's just they really have it nailed. So, so go check them out. Yeah. Okay, Fraser. So I was thinking, what did the staff think when you said, hey, everybody, we're all using iPads? Did you get any, you know, any resistance? Um, I don't know that we got resistance. I, I, I think it's probably useful to explain the kind of way that we came to the decision, which was that it was about November, December of 2009, and we had, in our school at that point, we had um, 12 iMacs in my classroom and 12 laptops, 12 MacBooks in Pelican cases that, that went about the school. And obviously that meant that I had basically half of the school's IT provision to myself. Yeah. And if you weren't in my class, then you weren't getting a lot of time on those computers because my classroom was being used pretty much the whole week. So there was basically my 12 and everybody else's 12. And... I think because we've been, we're not a high tech school in the sense that we're we're not STEM focused, you know, science, technology, engineering, maths. We're not we're not focused on those subjects specifically, but we have been a school that has used technology to teach with for since the the, the day we opened. And I think the thing was that we had very much established in the school the idea that it was okay to teach with technology, which is in in many ways that's the hardest part of the whole thing is that there are some people out there who are still thinking that that's maybe not something they want to do. But the problem we came to at the end of 09 was that we teachers were basically fighting over when who's getting the computers, and, and there was kind of fist fights and so on. Well, not really, but uh, close at times. Um, and we realized that we had to basically expand our provision somehow. And at that time, we were looking at our laptops and going, well... Uh, we we could maybe get another, maybe double the size of the laptop set or something. But one of the problems with that actually is that our school is built on, it's a very old building, it's an 1850s building, I think it is, um, and it doesn't have an elevator between the floors because it's a listed building, which in the UK means that you can't make unauthorized and um, inappropriate modifications to the building and so on. Um, also, architecturally, we can't find anywhere to build one even if we wanted to. D- does that um, mean like it's a historical building? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So it, it was. Um, it is, in fact, as far as I know, it is the only building in Scotland that was built for the purpose of being a businessman's social club. Uh, and so uh, my classroom used to be the bar, and the primary one classroom used to be a ballroom, and the art classroom used to be a billiards room. So uh, it's a kind of strange old building. <laughs> That's kind of um, fun. Actually, it's, it's a lovely place to work. It really is. Um, but what it means is that carting these. Uh, suitcases full of laptops up three flights of stairs is a bit difficult for any one teacher you know um so a trolley-based system that most schools have doesn't work for us at all um so we had the choice of doing that or there was um you you may have heard of a school called isa academy e-double-s-a academy in england where about eight months before this time they had done a one-to-one ipod touch program for their whole school Uh, and their school is about I think it was maybe 680 at the time or something. It's a bit bigger now. Um, so we we started to think about that and said, well, you know, looking at the iPod Touch, it's very cheap, £180 or whatever it was then. Um, we could easily afford one of those for everybody. Is giving everybody a computer something we want to do? So then we started to look into one-to-one and there was ESA's results and there was results from the state of Maine where they did their 50,000-seat iBook laptop program several years before. And we started to get pretty excited about the idea of giving everybody a computer. But um, 
people came back to me. We, looked, we were looking at the iPod Touch, and I said, well, you know, we all like our iPhones and stuff. What about this? And teachers looked at it, and they came back to me and said basically four things. One, that the um, the screen is too small to be our everyday computer. They didn't like the keyboard. They, they said there was no presentation software, and there was no word processor, apart from the notes application. Now, of course, today there's a Bluetooth keyboard you can put on it. There's yeah. pages and there's Keynote, but still it's the same size device. So we kind of waited a little bit. And obviously, you know, we were only a month ahead of the iPad announcement. If you think we were looking for something that was easier than a laptop, lighter, smaller, longer lasting, but as easy to use as a phone, um, but just a bit bigger and with more powerful software. Well, that sounds a whole lot like the iPad, doesn't it? Yeah. And you, you, know, so, you being connected, you yeah. probably knew that that was coming or everybody was talking about it. Well, yeah, uh, yes, um, I, I didn't. I mean, I had no particular inside information, no. but I, I certainly read the rumors. The rumors were else, there. yeah, and yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was kind of priming the pump a little bit. Um, it wasn't just pure coincidence, but I, I think <laughs> having started that conversation before the iPad came out made the conversation after the iPad came out a whole lot easier. I bet. Because I, I, I kind of came back and said, guys, you know how we were talking about a computer for everybody? Well, take a look at this thing. It's, it's the cost of two iPod Touches, uh, and it's got this and this and this and all the things that we wanted. Yeah, and, and, and as we're one, waiting for um, yeah. Steve to get through that presentation, you're probably on pins and needles about, is this something we can afford or not? Yeah, well, when that when that price slide came up, you know, it was like, oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, I think one of the things when I talked to teachers beforehand, I said, well, when you take the laptops into your classroom, what do you do with them? And the answer that came back all the time was we use the word processor and we go on the web. Yeah. And I often say to people that if, if all the iPad did was run Safari, we would probably still have deployed it because access to the web is so important to the way we teach. Uh, it's so important to everybody in the world now. But uh, yeah, it, it was. An interesting way to come to that. And in terms of resistance, I think that the problem I had that people don't have now is I had to teach people what the iPad was. I had to teach the teachers. I had to teach the parents. I, had, I spent most of that early period of the deployment basically arguing with people that the iPad was a real computer. Yeah. Well, that was the conversation that we had back then. Well, what about the fact that there is not a keyboard on the iPad? I'm sure that that was a cause of consternation. People wondered about it, certainly. Um, but the thing that got us over the hump with that was the, the existence of the keyboard dock. Yeah. Not that we actually bought any, but the <laughs> fact that it existed. You know, because there are some subjects that, that are very um, writing-based, you know, um, English, history, uh, some of the other subjects, modern studies. Um, they're based on essays, basically. And we said to those teachers who were con- kind of concerned about that, they were saying, you know, how can we, how can kids write an 800-word essay on, on a virtual keyboard? I said, look, just try it. And if you really want it, we'll get you a set of, blue- of Bluetooth keyboards or keyboard docs, as it was then. Um, so they were like, okay, we'll, we'll try it, we'll try it. Nobody ever came back to me. We've never bought one. And, yes. and the kids are probably much more adaptive to that than the adults are. Oh, massively. That was one of the results, really, was that it came home to me about a year into the program when I had kids coming in to do my programming class on on laptops. And when the girl said to me, Mr. Spears, I really hate these keyboards. You've got to press the keys then. Yeah. That was, uh, <laughs> well, that's, that's interesting because I bet if you start early um, and you're working on the virtual keyboard, maybe you never do get into the physical keyboard and the way we all fetishize it. 
Yeah, I think it's a, it's very much a generational thing and an experience thing as well because I think people who have you know used the iPad for a couple of years now, I don't think they, um, I think the people of our generation start to understand where a physical keyboard is important and where it's not. But the way I see these kids working on these virtual keyboards now, I don't think um, I don't know that they're ever concerned to to deploy a, a physical keyboard. I mean, give you an example, we. Uh, we did a couple for kids who had um, so additional support needs in the school. You're allowed to do a, a digital exam paper for them where they can type their, their answers um, on the computer and then they print it out and it goes away with the written papers or everybody else. We had two kids doing that this year. And for both of them, I, I set up their iPad with, well, it was actually a, a spare iPad of my own. It wasn't their iPad in the exam, but I, I gave them both a Bluetooth keyboard and one boy used it certainly, but the other candidate, um, they uh, they actually just put the Bluetooth keyboard on the floor and did the whole exam on the virtual keyboard. Yeah, you know, uh, they didn't see it as an advantage at all. Now that brings an interesting topic because our re- what we would consider to be regular keyboards, um, you know, the big boat that I've got sitting here in front of me on my desk, my desk, this big DOS keyboard thing. Are, are those mm-hmm. going to go away? Are those going to be no more? And in the future, are we going to have devices just like this? Are the kids that you're educating today who are going to be entering the workforce in you know, 15, 20 years or so, mm-hmm. are they not going to have experience typing on a physical keyboard, um, much less handwriting, these types of things? Are these going to be lost arts? Because I'll tell you, one of the best classes, one of the most useful classes that I ever took in maybe middle school or high school was typing. I mean, that was hugely mm-hmm. invaluable to me to actually learn how to type properly on a keyboard yeah. without looking. Yeah. I mean, the, the way I see that these days is that um, being able to type correctly the first time is an artifact of um, a typewriter mentality, right? Where, where correcting the text was very expensive and time consuming and, and ruined the final product, if you like. Um, whereas the way we're looking at it now is that it's not typing correctly the first time that's the major skill, it's proofreading what you've typed. And that's both for typos, but also for autocorrect. That's true. Uh, m- mistakes, you know. And that's uh, in some ways a more sophisticated skill for children is to read it back and uh, just see where autocorrect may have inserted the wrong word. Yeah. Um, uh, and we're starting to see things, and these are kind of, I'm not saying to you that these are good things or that they're bad things. I'm just saying that I see them happening uh, and I don't know whether they're good or not, but they are happening, you know, and that's, that's the fact of the matter. And one is I see kids behaving very differently with autocorrect than you and I would behave with autocorrect where we would try and type the whole word and then accept the correction if we were wrong. Whereas children who are sort of learning spellers, they're, um, trying the stem of the word, if you like, and then they're seeing what the autocorrect system provides them, and then they're either accepting or rejecting that based on whatever they think is correct, um, which is a kind of interesting behavioral difference between the generations as well. And the second thing that I see coming along now is children who are as good at drawing or writing with their fingertip on a, on a touchscreen as they are with writing with a pen on paper. Wow, and it's not—it's not the handwriting is going away, but it's that um, they are doing so much on the iPad that their handwriting on with their finger on a touchscreen is becoming very, very good. Really, what, what apps are they doing that in? Well, uh, further down the school, we we use apps like uh, very simple line drawing applications like Chalkboard, um, 
Uh, and later on, uh, we use more sophisticated apps like Brushes, for example, but we don't use Brushes just, just to write on the iPad with. But there's lots of apps that have space to do a little drawing with your finger. Penultimate is one I use in the classroom a lot. Um, and I'm terrible with it. You know, I, I find it very hard to get anything that looks good on the iPad, but I'm seeing kids who can you know, sketch out a little diagram from the board or actually write with their finger, and they're getting pretty good at it. Yeah, you know, the skills are changing. That's for the skills are changing, absolutely they are. And, and I think if you just look around in society, society's already changed. Yeah. You know, in large part. I mean, most many, many people don't, you know, since, since when was it the ability to write four to eight pages of handwritten text on paper a real competitive advantage in society? And I don't just mean in the job market, but I just mean how does that, does that make you a, a more efficient, more capable member of your society if you can write a, for a long time on paper? Probably the last time that was necessary for me is when I sat for the bar exam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in many ways, that's the, that's the reason we still teach well. it. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. It was so funny. When you take the bar exam, they're always afraid you're cheating, you know? I don't know if you yeah. are day jobs or lawyers, right? So, yeah. so one of the things they do is they wanted back in my day, this was like 1993, uh, you had to take a, a handwritten exemplar. I've been printing mm-hmm. since I was in high school. I never handwrite. And they said, no, yeah. you can't print. You have to handwrite. So I was literally stressing out in the middle of this bar exam, trying to remember yeah. how I handwrite a cue. I, I'll never forget <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, I, my, my daughter, 15-year-old, I have tried now for like six years, every summer, to say, you need to learn how to type. And I've bought every typing app there is on the Mac. And, and she never sticks it out. And I gave up this year. I said, yeah, I'm not going to try and push her into it anymore because – she gets by really fast on a keyboard and on the iPad. And mm-hmm. I think voice dictation is going to become just bigger and bigger. And, you know, I guess that's her problem. She's going to figure it out someday. If she needs to learn how to type, she'll have to take the time to learn. But I'm not sure she will. You know, I I didn't, I always got by, like your daughter, very well and very efficiently, probably typing 40, 50, 60 words a minute by knowing about where the keys were and looking down at my fingers. And it wasn't probably until, I want to say, my freshman year in high school when I took my formal typing class and they removed the keys from the keyboard. The only keys on the keyboard were the F and the J key. Everything else was blank. And you you learned how to touch type then. So maybe that's what you need to do. Well, I'm like, I'm, and to some extent, like Fraser's saying, I'm not sure it matters as much. But okay. who knows? It's going to be interesting in the classroom when voice dictation is the default way of working with a computer. It's going to get very noisy very quickly. Yeah, well, even, that is even the workplace, yeah. too. I, I mean, I wonder about that. But, like, as an example, um, you know, a lot of times I want to put text of a statute into something I'm writing. And because of some RSI issues, I don't want to sit there and type, you know, mm-hmm. 800 words just like a secretary would. And, and I just turn on dictation and I start speaking it. And I'm fortunate that I, I don't work in a cubicle, but that's the way I put text in now. It's not, I don't type anymore for it. And and I think that's only going to get bigger in the future. Yeah. Well, David, we probably should at this point take another quick break and talk about our second sponsor for this show. And that is Pixelmator, one of my favorite programs on the Mac. And the first program, one of the first programs that I installed on my 
fancy new MacBook Air when I got it. And I love Pixelmator being available in the Mac App Store because it just makes downloading and installing and reinstalling all of these programs so easy. They were really one of the first developers to embrace uh, the App Store technology and yeah. say, you know what, we're going to do this. We're going to go all out. We're going to be on the App Store, and that's what we're going to do. And um, they got over that hump, and uh, kudos to them. So uh, for those who don't know, Pixelmator uh, is just effortless, beautiful, made-for-the-Mac uh, image editing on your Mac. And it has now become the only image editor that I use on my Mac. I, I used to have a copy of some of those other advanced image editings before I, I used to before I went to law school, I used to do graphic design, and I was one of those people who insisted, oh, no, I, I need one of those uh, you know, ultra-uber-powerful graphic design programs and held on to it as long as I could until it wouldn't run anymore and then picked up the light version. And now that I found Pixelmator, I found that I can do just about anything that I need to do to a photo or to a graphic with Pixelmator, and it's this lightweight, uh, easy-to-use, efficient Mac program and I was just looking on the uh, Mac App Store, David. It, I don't know if it's a, a price drop or a special that they're running right now, but it is only fourteen ninety nine. Yeah, can you believe that? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> something this powerful for fifteen bucks. Yeah, I think their their regular price was thirty bucks, so I'm not sure. It doesn't say that this is a sale, so maybe if you if you haven't pulled the trigger on Pixelmator yet, you might want to you might want to pick that up pretty quick. And it, it ties right into Aperture, and it ties right into iPhoto, so you can go outside of the application to do your thing. Um, and it's just a great app. It, it looks like a Mac app, and it works like a Mac app. And I do all my uh, high-end photo editing in Pixelmator. In fact, uh, Marco, you know, another 5x5 host, uh, Marco Arment, also a guy who made Instapaper, just did a really interesting post on his blog about how he's trying to use his big boy camera a little bit more often. And that motivated me to uh, to pull out the the Canon for Fourth of July, and I took some great family pictures. I had them in Pixelmator, took care of all the blemishes, cleaned up the lighting. Man, it came out really great. And uh, for fifteen bucks, I just can't think of a better way to go. Yeah, I used Pixelmator recently on a project that I was doing. One of my um, senior partners celebrated his fiftieth year of practicing law, and I did a, a photo book and iPhoto. But so many of the photos, as you can imagine, that we collected over 50 years, a lot of them from his early legal career, were just in, in pretty bad shape. I mean, they'd been stuck up on a bulletin board. They were aged. You know how they get that that red kind of tint to them after they've been aged for a while, and they had torn edges, and they just looked pretty bad, and I was not optimistic when I when I initially scanned them in. And the book turned out beautiful. I pulled every single picture into Pixelmator and was able to retouch them and, you know, take out where people had sometimes stuck multiple push pins through them to uh, attach them to the bulletin board, you know, remove the fading where they had gotten aged spots and faded. Uh, and I was just so pleased with the outcome. And, and everybody loved the book and was just glowing about, oh, my gosh, I don't know how these photos look so good. And And the trick was... Nothing fancy that I did. I'm I'm pretty novice when it comes to editing these types of things. It was totally with Pixelmator. And if you haven't, you should check out their website because they have a series of awesome tutorials that can show you not only how to do some, some easy fixes like the ones that I did with my photos, such as um, cleaning up older photos and removing spots and blemishes, but how to do some really cool things like dropping the background out of a photo or uh, create a special black and white effect to a photo or just about... Uh, anything that you want to do with your photo, they've got it covered in one of the tutorials, and they're just awesome. 
Yeah, and that's another point. If you're, you've never used a high-end photo imaging app and you've always been curious, this is your chance because it's only $15. And they've got these video tutorials on their website. So you can really educate yourself on this stuff very quickly. And uh, the, the, this is a great sponsor. Go check them out. If you do buy it, let them know you heard about it from us. Uh, that always helps us. And um, uh, check it out at, at Pixelmator.com or in the Mac App Store. Just look up Pixelmator. Yeah, and uh, thank you to Pixelmator for their kind support of Mac Power users. You know, Fraser, another thing that you do that we haven't even discussed yet is you're a developer. In fact, the first time yeah. I heard of you was when I bought some software from you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Uh, on the subject of photo software, you made this excellent uh, Flickr exporter that works both with mm-hmm. Aperture and, and iTunes. I'm sorry, Aperture and iPhoto. iPhoto, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's been an interesting job over several years now it's surprising to me to just think back how how long i've been doing that kind of thing i mean i started developing os 10 software cocoa software really when mac os 10 10.0 shipped out and did various um little applications and so on the first thing i ever shipped with was an application called external which was a a live journal client back in the day if you remember live journal mm-hmm. at all um which I quite liked and uh, it was quite a good app at the time. Um, but then Flickr started to get popular about 2004, I think. And uh, I actually, I reverse engineered everything sitting in a hotel room in The Hague uh, for a work conference at the time. I had to reverse engineer Flickr's own upload protocol and also iPhoto's plugin system as well. Uh, and eventually figured out both of those and made something that sort of roughly worked. Um, and it's just kind of gotten more powerful since then. And uh, uh, eventually there was, I think it was maybe 07 or something, uh, Aperture 1.5 came out. Aperture 1 had been out for a while, but 1.5 was the version that brought um, plug-in capabilities, export plug-in capabilities to Aperture. And I ported uh, a version of Flickr export to work with Aperture as well. Yeah, I think never has an application improved more in one generation than Aperture did from 1 to 1.5. Well, yeah, that was that was a great release. Yeah. And then you also do Viewfinder for iPad, which I'm I just bought. I didn't even know this program existed, but I really dig it. Mhm. Yeah, Viewfinder came out of the, the Mac version and the iPad version came out of uh, a desire for well, I remember what what it was was I was sitting a few summers ago uh, trying to build a presentation for the first day of school, and, and I realized that I had spent about two hours searching the web for specific images and had basically got about four good ones. Yeah, that were properly licensed that I could use in this presentation, um, and I thought, you know, oh, if only there was a massive website full of pictures that had an API that you could search. Uh, and if only there was a guy who knew how to program against that API for the Mac. <laughs> if only. <laughs> um, and and uh, I suddenly realized what was all kind of just sitting there in front of me. And uh, so Viewfinder, it, what it does is it searches Flickr for photos based on keywords that you put in. But you can filter the results by license. So you can only search Creative Commons licenses. Uh, and and it, all, it gives you an easy way to download um, those photos, if you're allowed to, you know, Viewfinder also uh, goes to some effort to 
uh, respect the the wishes of, of the photographer as well. So if the photographer has said on the site that's not available for download, then it's not available for download in Viewfinder either. The rule that I, I programmed to with Viewfinder was that it was no more or less access than you would get in Safari. Yeah. If you just went to Flickr.com with Safari, not logged in, and tried to download some stuff. If you could download it that way, you can download it that way in Viewfinder. And I didn't see it as... Um, offending anybody really to um, just make it easier to download things that were available to download anyway. Um, it, it didn't go round the back. It didn't uh, enable special access to photos that otherwise shouldn't have been accessible. Um, and I could have done some of that actually. There were some ways in which I could have, um, I could have disregarded certain flags in the API and made everything downloadable, but I didn't do that. Uh, I, I took that rule, you know, everything is just as accessible as uh, as it would be in a browser. So you're trying to respect the rights of the photographers, but make it easy for yeah. people to find this stuff. The other thing Viewfinder does is it will, when it downloads a picture from from Flickr, it will insert the ownership, uh, the origin URL, and some ownership information into the meta tags as well. Yeah, I'm going to be using this because I, I do presentations all the time, and I'm always looking for images, and I've got my stock photo image library and I, I'm always buying images, but I, I really like this idea. And I found that you know, like searching Google images just doesn't work. Yeah, it's a lot of effort for not a lot of reward. Yeah. You know, we talked so much about what you've done and what you've set up for the school, but we never really talked about what you're using, your your own personal Mac and your own setup. I'm mm-hmm. I'm, I'm assuming that you, you've got your own iPad and your own iPhone and Obviously, we mm-hmm. know that you program, so you've got to have your own Mac and all. But but what kind of equipment and what kind of hardware are you using? Okay. So um, the machine I'm talking to you on just now is uh, a 2009-era 27-inch iMac, which is the first, the first generation 27-inch iMac that came out. It's a Core i7 processor. Basically, it was the best one you could get at the time. Core i7 uh, chip, uh, 8 gigs of RAM terabyte hard drive which I regretted from about a month into owning the machine until today and I still regret it because I cheaped out and I should have got the two terabyte hard drive <laughs> um, so sitting behind this machine now I've got a, a big daisy chain of hard drives uh, well you know to, if you've got some suction cups you can fix that I'm not that brave because <laughs> what's going to happen is a little hair is going to get in there somewhere in this massive display and it's going to drive me mad uh, so I'm just going to live with the drives outside um, so that's my main machine at home. Um, and hanging off the back of that, there's another terabyte drive, which contains my aperture library, which is, um, about 600 gigs worth of stuff. Um, and I also use a, a Voyager Q, uh, drive dock to do backups. So there, there's two drive docks there. There's one sitting with a two terabyte drive, which is just time machine. It just sits here and does that. And then I've got another one that I can plug in additional external drives to if I need to. That's my that's my home machine. The, well, the other thing that's hanging off here is, is a Canon P150 scanner, which I think we'll talk about in a, in a minute or two. But that's that has been one of the best things that I have bought years for computers. Love it. It's curious to me that you use Aperture because I didn't know, you know, because you wrote all these apps about the Flickr export. I didn't know if you're mm-hmm. iPhoto Aperture or uh, anything else. So, so you Aperture is your weapon of choice for photo management. It is. 
Yeah, I have to be honest with you though that um, over the past couple of years, the amount of time I've had to spend in photography has gone down and down and down. But I recently have kind of felt it spark a little bit again with uh, with the release of iPhoto for iOS. Yeah, which I a lot of people have have sort of been pretty nasty about iPhoto for iOS, but I think it is I think it is a fantastic application, um, and it just kind of brought back the joy of photography again because. My the thing that made me sad about photography was that, like, not just aperture, but really the the camera companies turned photography into a job. You know, they turned it into a sysadmin job where I've got to have hard drives and I've got to have double hard drives for backup, and my library's an unmanageable size now, all because the camera resolution is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I mean, I understand there are some people who need that, but. I would be happy with an eight megapixel camera, but just with the newer generations of you know noise reduction and all that kind of stuff. But just I, I don't need that amount of resolution. Um, so I kind of I kind of fell out with photography for a couple of years just because it was it was slow and it was work, you know, rather than just being fun and playing with photos. I can totally understand that because it does yeah. feel like work. You go to a family event, then you've got to spend you know your time getting everything ready. Yeah, there's that. There's charging your camera and all the all the stuff. But there's also the other half. You know, you come back from a thing, you're tired, and you know, and I've got two kids, I'm putting them to bed. Then it's nine o'clock at night, and now I've got to download all my pictures, and I've got to put them in aperture, and I've got to tag them and adjust them because I'm shooting raw and da 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 da. And oh, I can't be bothered with that anymore. <laughs> um, and it, it just got to the point where it wasn't fun. You know, and I wanted it to be fun, and I loved photography, but I feel now like with the iPhone 4S, which is the phone that I use, um, the camera in the 4S is fantastic, and it and the things you can do with those photos straight away and share them with people and edit them on the device, or you use PhotoStream and edit them on your iPad and share them from there. And I mean, the iPhoto journals are fantastic as well. Uh, it's just it's just fun again, and I love doing it. Excellent. So, so tell us about um, the other things that you've got on your desk. You mentioned mm-hmm. you mentioned about the scanner. Tell yeah. us how you use that. I should mention these, just before we get fo- into the scanner that um, yeah, is this for photography the, or is this for documents or you use it to go it's paperless? For paper or? and paper and documents and a whole paperless workflow. Oh, the other okay. machine tell that us I carry, about that. I'll, just, you know, I'll just mention is um, I have a, a 2010 MacBook Air, 11 inch oh, okay. MacBook Air, which is my is the computer I, I carry to school with me. Um, Although, to be honest with you, recently it just stays in my bag all the time. And that's another effect of the iPad, if you like. Mm-hmm. My iPad is, is the iPad 3 as well. Yeah, that's a real thin line between the iPad and the 11-inch MacBook Air. Yeah. And I think the, the line for me is that I actually just like iOS better. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's more immediate. It's more fun. There are a lot of tasks that I now do that are, I only do them on iOS. You know, I only do Twitter and iOS because Tweetbot is so good and it's not on the Mac yet. Um, I, I only read RSS on the iPad because Flipboard is so great, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of things that I, I just like doing better on iOS now. Do you find yourself sometimes doing a task on the iPad that might be a little slower, but it's just better? Like, Yeah. I, um, I noticed that with myself. Like, for instance, OmniFocus is uh, is one of my favorite apps, but I find I really prefer to manage my OmniFocus stuff on my iPad, even though I can do some uh-huh. things faster on the Mac. Yeah, it's um, 
I think to me that the thing the thing about iOS is that if I'm doing it there, I know I can have that with me everywhere. That at any point I can pull something out and I can you know work on to dos or I can uh, pull out my iPad on the train and start fiddling with an Omniplan document or something like that. Um, whereas if it's on the computer, then it's it's always such a kind of ceremony to get the computer out, even on even without an 11 inch macbook air you know you've got to open it up and then it's slow to log in and you know, all the reasons why we moved away from from laptops in school you know personally i just i find that as well so let's talk about this paper was workflow you developed because yeah. you know we're all about going paperless here mm-hmm. it's uh for years and years i have been tracking the very gradual price reductions of the, of the ScanSnap line of scanners, and I, I kind of liked them, but you know, didn't have three hundred and fifty pounds or whatever it was that they wanted for a scanner back then. Um, but a couple of friends had them, and you know, just would not stop going on about how fantastic they were. Yeah, I'm like and, that. Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, it seems that everybody who's got one is a bit like that. Um, you know, how do you know somebody's got a ScanSnap? Well, they'll tell you about it. You know. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I was looking into it one day, and this uh, this scanner came up on Amazon, and it was it's the Canon P one fifty document scanner, and it's very much in, in the it's the exact same idea as a ScanSnap scanner, except it's a lot smaller, um, and it folds up. Um, I don't know if you remember the uh, Apple used to make a, a an inkjet a portable inkjet printer. I think it was called like the Stylewriter twenty two hundred or something. It went along with very old power books, but it was a very small, um, it's about the width, just comparing it here on my desk, it's exactly the same width as an Apple Bluetooth keyboard. Um, it's about an um, inch and a half high when it's closed, and the top edge of it opens out um, to, to be a, it sort of unfolds to be a sheet feeder scanner. So it scans both sides at once. It's got a button on top to automatically scan one of the presets that it has. Um, and it will take 20 to 30 pages at a time and just pass them through and then it'll turn it into a PDF or a JPEG for you. I, I couldn't be more happy with it. What do you do with all this stuff once you scan it in? So the the initial idea was uh, I'm scanning the PDFs and saving them in uh, just in Dropbox. And that worked okay for a while, but... Um, Sort of at the same time as tracking the the development of um, ScanSnap scanners, I was also tracking the development of Evernote, and I had I've been an Evernote Premium subscriber for about two years now. But what I was been looking for from Evernote was just watching the iOS clients get better and better, um, because I'm starting to realize that I don't want to get involved in any system that can only be done on a Mac, because there's a lot of my life now where I'm not near a Mac. But I am near two iOS devices. So to me, it's very important that anything I, I invest in now works very well on iOS. And, you know, the first few versions of Evernote were not, they were just not as powerful on iOS. And that wasn't always Evernote's fault. Sometimes that was limitations in early versions of iOS, you know, the text editing limitations and so on that made it very hard for them to support the things that they support on the desktop. But um, in recent versions, you know, the iOS clients have come on so far for Evernote that they are now, you know, almost at parity with the Mac version. Not totally, but, you know, for the kind of things you'll do on the road, they're they're pretty good. 
Um, so I decided that I was going to start looking at Evernote, and, and the P150 actually comes uh, preset to scan into Evernote. That's one of the defaults in the software that you install is uh, scan straight into Evernote. So that's what I do for the most part now is I'll just drop, you know, I've got my uh, documents here for the new car that I bought today. Uh, just drop them into the top of the scanner, hit the button. You know, two seconds later, a window pops up in Evernote with uh, the date as a subject and then the PDF as an attachment. Now, as you, as you probably know, um, Evernote can... Uh, scan and recognize text inside a PDF. So that's all now searchable as well. And uh, th that's how I deal with it at my desk. You know, I have on one side of me, I've got a bin, and on the other side, I've got a shredder, and I've got a pile of mail, and it just goes, you know, one place and then the next place, and then it gets shredded. That's very similar to what Katie does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's fantastic. It's, it's changed the look of my office dramatically. <laughs> uh, and that was how I got started with paperless workflow was just, um, I guess a lot of people who've got into paperless, the, the thing that um, folks have to understand is you don't start by getting out your uh, filing cabinet and going through all the old stuff page by page, right? You leave that where it is and you start with the new stuff yeah. and then maybe That's go back and fill in, fill in the background later. Exactly, work backwards. The, uh, you know, the one thing about the, the Evernote, and I've said this on the show before, so listeners are probably tired of hearing about it, but I, I do worry about kind of like future-proofing. I mean, uh, documents that I scan a paper, especially family documents and things like that. I'm looking like at a 30 year mm -hmm. window. I want them to be openable in 30 years. And that's why it's yeah. so hard for me to give up on just a traditional nested folder system, because I, I just feel like that's so much more future proof than anything I could get from a particular vendor. Yeah. I think as with many of these things, you know, whether that's iTunes or Aperture or iPhoto or, you know, any of these applications that abstract the file system away from you, you, you've got to keep your eye on, are they still alive? You know, yeah. I mean, I, have, I haven't done a lot in Aperture for quite a while now, but I've, I'm still kind of keeping an eye on the Aperture updates and, you know, what happens when, when uh, Aperture moves on and so on. One of the things I do as part of my practice is um, routinely I'll back up my Evernote locally. So what I'll do is I'll just grab, select all the notebooks and then export them um, to a, a folder in Dropbox. So I've got a, a separate copy outside of the application just in case the sync system one day freaks out and, you know, um, everything disappears. Yeah. You know, I've got a, a certain amount stored there as well. And Evernote but, has got much better about the exporting. I mean, that was that was a good complaint for a long time. I'm not sure it's a good complaint yeah. anymore because they they have got a way now to get PDFs out and they, they're getting yes. there. I think they're really trying yes. to, to solve those problems. They understand uh, where we're coming from on that. Yeah, I mean, my, my big gripe with Evernote in the early days was that um, it would rename all your PDFs when you imported them to some massive random hex string. Um, <laughs> they don't do that I think, that, yeah, um, one of the things I realized with that was that if I was going, if I was scanning directly into Evernote, I, I didn't have any data in the file name to preserve. All the data was in the file. Right? Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm searching the OCR text in the file and the note content, that is my data. It's, there's nothing worth preserving in the file name, in that, at least in that situation. Now, bringing older documents into Evernote, yes, there is something to preserve there, but not, um, not for new stuff. And, you know, as we sit here, I'm thinking about it. Evernote, I could see having a role at your school because you could use shared notebooks and 
you could do some interesting stuff with Evernote. If the whole well, it's really on. interesting you you say that. Yeah, um, I have a friend who works at a, a school in New Jersey. His name is Bill States, and he his school has a one to one MacBook Pro program, uh, which is very nice for them, and. Their whole school runs on Evernote. They're probably the, uh, it's Montclair Kimberly Academy in New Jersey. And they're probably the preeminent school in the world at running their school on Evernote. Um, I, I think they've probably got the biggest sponsored account system in Evernote in the whole world. Um, and they they seem to be getting brilliant results out of it. Yeah. Um, we're, we're also, when I do my sort of consulting around iOS, um, for schools, one of the things, we sometimes talk about is using Evernote as a way to uh, make it possible to share iPads between people. Um, I'm not I'm not in love with that model, but it works in certain very well defined circumstances where the majority of what you want to make is notes or just still images. Um, I was actually consulting this week with a, a language teaching school in, uh, near my home, and. One of the things they had there was that mostly what they did was they wanted to do um, audio recording and they wanted to be able to have, have the students maybe make uh, like vocabulary notebooks and stuff. Um, and Evernote was perfect for that because you can record into a note, obviously, and you can type into a note and so on. And because um, the way their population was, they could. it was important for them to be able to use anything that the students brought with them. So if the kids brought in an Android device, okay, you've got Evernote for Android. If you, you know, if all you've got is a PC, then you've got Evernote for the PC. And even if you don't have anything, you've got Evernote for the web. So um, that really made a lot of sense there. Uh, I, I don't think uh, it's a perfect solution for everything that you might want to do in a school, but I, I think it's powerful in some situations. Yeah, you know, and um, and for anyone listening, Fraser does do consulting with schools, and if you are an educator listening to the show, you may want to contact him. I'll put the the contact information in the show notes. Yeah, you just heard me mention I bought a car, so I need to pay for that somehow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. I'm feeling um, that pain right now too. My my yeah. as my kid gets closer to driving. Uh, but the uh, yeah. anyway, um, yeah. there's you do, you do also do some great writing on your blog, and I want to talk about a couple things in, in particular. You do you just did a really mm. good uh, uh, post about book scanning, about taking a book and and putting mm. it into your system. And there's another post that you did I want to talk about. But before we do that, let's let's hit our last sponsor. And I know that that Fraser likes his Canon scanner, but I got to tell you, you would have to pry my scan snap out of my cold <laughs> dead hand because I love the scanner so much. I've I've been using them for years now, and uh, and and scan and Fujitsu now has a new scan snap. I don't know if you're aware of it. It's called the thirteen hundred i, and uh, it's looks very similar to the prior thirteen hundred model. It's the portable line. I call it the briefcase scanner, the one that you can kind of carry around with you or the suitcase when you go into a hotel room. Um, but it now has a lot of internet cr- uh, stuff built into it, into the software, like you can scan directly to the cloud, just like he was talking about earlier with, with uh, Evernote. You can do other types of scans as well. Yeah, this this scanner is really designed and it is really built for integrating it into your mobile life, whether you're going to scan to the Evernote cloud, whether you're going to scan to the Dropbox cloud, uh, whether you're going to scan to a sugar sink, uh, whether you just want to scan uh, directly into your iOS device. Uh, they've got their, their quick scans menu. And you can do that directly. And we've got actually a special promo going on for for ScanSnap. That do you want to talk about that? You want me to talk yeah, about that? Yeah, we got an S thirteen hundred that we can give away to a listener. But they have to work for it, right? Yeah, I you know we talked about contests, and I always 
I don't like the idea of, you know, you just send an email and we're going to pick your name out of a hat. That's not no. good enough. We, we make them work for it. Yeah, so we decided that if you want an S1300, you need to get out your pencil and write some haiku about why you love a Fujitsu scan snap or maybe paperless in general, I guess. And and uh, we're going to pick one and read it on the air and send you a brand spanking new scan snap S1300i. Yeah, I think we're actually going to pick a couple of these, and we're going to feature them on the show. Uh, the the best one, and we're gonna we're gonna be at our sole discretion, or and maybe we might involve some of the ScanSnap people. Is going to get a, a brand new shiny ScanSnap S thirteen hundred i, and I also have a uh, a consolation prize to give away. They also sent me a free one year Evernote Premium subscription to give away because they are focusing so much on scanning to the cloud. So if you already have a scanner or if you are going to go get one and maybe uh, you want to try the Evernote thing out, you know, this free, the standard version of Evernote is free, but you do get a whole lot more, including that PDF OCR. If you uh, use their premium service. So we got all kinds of goodies to give away from Fujitsu. So get out your pen and paper or your keyboard and send us a haiku. Now, I'm going to set up a, a rule for this so you can send that to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com uh, or you can send it through the 5x5 contact page. And make sure you have the word scan or the words scan snap haiku in the subject. And that yeah. way they'll all go into the same folder. And th- those are two words, not three. Yeah, scan snap being one word. Haiku being another word. And the subject one. Yeah, uh, send it out. I think we'll have the, we'll announce the winner in probably a month. We'll give it another another show or two. Yeah, yeah, we'll announce the winner next month and we'll read a couple of them on the show. So if you send them to us, realize that we we reserve the right to read them on the show. So maybe go for funny, maybe go for clever, maybe go for serious. I don't know. We'll see what we like. And if you're not into the S1300i, there's other scan snaps. Uh, my favorite being the 1500. Man, I love that scanner. It sits on my desk, just tears through paper like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the S1300i is a, is a great machine. It's a nice compact machine. Um, I'm really encouraging my brother to pick up one of these when he when he goes off and you know, starting his new life. And I'm hoping he will start a paperless life and not keep so much paper around because it's it's really starting to pile up in his room right now well thanks fujitsu for sponsoring the show and uh, allowing us to give a scanner away to a listener i'm looking forward to seeing what you guys submit and um and thanks again to fujitsu yeah okay fraser so you're writing and you're doing some great stuff you did this post i just looked it up january 20 january 29th 2010 called future shock mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I knew of you because I had bought the app from you, but I didn't know how smart you were. And then, uh, this app made the rounds on the internet. I found it, and I just thought it was amazing. And and so what you're talking about is um, the the failure of of geeks and the way the whole technology system works for people. And I, I guess I'm not really summarizing it properly, but but the idea is, you know. When you look at buying technology, it's one of those few things where you needed a wizard. I don't think that was the word you used, but you need mm-hmm. you, when you need to buy a computer, you always have to find a computer friend uh, to go yeah. with you to make sure you don't get the wrong thing. Yeah, and that yeah. that was kind of a failure of the industry that that when people needed a wizard, that you know everyone was being let down. Yeah, it, it, it just can't. It was an interesting piece to write and just to think about because 
I had obviously been thinking about a lot of these topics for a long time because having taught people, you know, I taught computers in school for several years before this point that it had just been such an unbelievable pain to try and teach people how computers worked. And I think really what I was, what I'm trying to say with this piece was basically it's not, it's not the people, it's actually the computers that are at fault here, right? Yeah. It's not that these people are stupid. It's not that they, you know, that they just don't get it, as we like to say. Um, but it's that there is actually something wrong with the standard desktop model that we have. And it wasn't clear to me even at the time of writing what exactly it was that was wrong. Uh, and I think the way one thing I mentioned in, in the piece was that the windowing model was wrong, particularly on the Mac where... Um, you you could have an app in the foreground that had no open windows but had control of the menu bar and then you know people don't understand the difference between the active and inactive state on a window and things like that um and you know why where did the print item go in the menu when i'm looking at my pages document oh it's because you actually clicked on the desktop and now the finder's active even though there's no windows open and if you just click on that you know and the number of times i said that in the course of a teaching year i you know drive me absolutely mad and I think I've kind of been vindicated on that because now that we're using iPad the kind of things I just mentioned like I used to spend you know a long time teaching children how to attach a file to uh, an email in our gmail system right yeah if you think about how complex that actually is you've got to open the browser enter a, a, a very obscure URL and um, log in with a username and password, then compose a message, click on the button that says attach a file, use the standard file dialog, which is probably the worst piece of UI in the entire system by 100 miles, um, to navigate somehow through this squirrely little hole to wherever it was you saved the file. And the problem being that you don't know where you saved the file in the first place anyway. Yeah. Um, then and, and then attach it, and okay, that's now loading, then you've got to write your email, and then you send it to me. Right. That's... That, takes a long time you know to even just explain how that works um and now i see those skills those things like attaching a file to an email and sending it is two taps and a and an autocomplete of an email address and a five-year-old can do it trivially yes you know and, and to me that is um we have we have finally cracked something in the standard xerox park-esque desktop model that we've been stuck with for years and years and years um and I think um, I didn't really understand what it was was the problem. I fingered the windowing model, but I think in, in truth the problem is actually the file system. And if if you look back to you know archival Steve Jobs quotes and so on, he he was talking about this back in 1980. You know that the file system was just the the thing that was complex. I turned up on the Computer History Museum website. There's a great clip of Steve Jobs talking to a group. I don't know who the group is he's talking to, but he this was 1980. Uh, he, he said, um, you know, when, when you have a problem and you want to attack your problem, but you want to use a computer, then what happens today, today being the 80s, we put a massive problem in your way, which is learning how to use a computer first, and then you can attack your problem. Yeah, And he said, he said back then that Apple's whole approach was to um, allow you to attack your problem directly without having to learn about computers first. And I think it's taken 30 years and all to, to get to that point, but I really feel that iOS is much closer to that vision of 
I want to open a computer and I just want to do something. I don't want to um, re- reform the way I think about that problem into the structures I have inside a computer and then do it. I want to just do the thing I want to do. And you don't want to defrag. You don't want to drill. You just want to send an email. Yeah. Yeah. I want to take something I make and I want to send it to you. The, um, and, and looking at your article, one of the, the points that comes through is how you needed to bring someone with you to buy a computer. And now this is, here we are two and a half years later. And I don't think people bring someone with them to buy an iPad. I think people generally just go in and buy an iPad. You can buy an iPod Touch at a vending machine. Yeah, but I mean, just in general, I mean, in terms of users. Know, I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't because just thinking back, what I you know, because I'm the family geek and and the friend geek for a lot of people in the world, and mm-hmm. and when they go to buy a new computer, even now they say, you know, I'm going to go get a new Mac. Which one should I get? But people don't call me to ask me when they're going to go buy an iPad. I just find out later that they bought an iPad. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely my experience too. Partly, I think that's also because they can now go to an Apple store instead of having to go to a big box reseller yeah, but, who didn't know anything about what it was they wanted to buy. But even deeper, though, I think they feel safe that they don't need someone to translate gigabytes and terabytes and you know hard drives and processors for them. They just say, <laughs> yeah, there's there's certainly many many fewer axes of choice as well. Yeah, you know, there's. What physical size do you want? Do you want a phone size or do you want a pad size? 16, 32, or 64, and do you want 3G? Yeah. That, that's it, you know. Um, and I, I think uh, it, it's, it's just so impressive the way that, you know, I mentioned there that you, you can now buy an iPod Touch out of a vending machine. Like you, you can buy a computer with no interaction with a person. Yeah. At all, you can buy anything. And, and, and normal, normal people will do that. You I know? prefer but, to operate that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot of us do. Fraser, I, I would love to see you go back to this post someday, and with all the experience you've had with this iPad rollout you've done at your school, and and hear mm-hmm. your thoughts, how that has progressed. So hopefully, someday you'll do that. But yeah, no maybe, I will. maybe I will. will. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the one of the things about in that piece that I I really felt very strongly about was I, I talked about the way that um, when adults encounter high technology, they they're sort of infantilized again. That they're they're thrust into a world that they don't understand. Yeah, just like as if they were a child, and they're helpless, essentially helpless. Um, you know, they can't they can't prevent being tricked or accidentally doing something wrong or whatever. Um, and, you know, people, the thing I think a lot of geeks forget, and I certainly forget, it's easy to forget, is that the person coming to you talking complete nonsense about a computer is actually a very intelligent person Yeah, in their field. You know, maybe they're, they're a, Maybe they're a, a, a cancer nurse or they're, they're a school teacher or they're, you know, they work in a, a banking or something or, you know, they, they know how to fix a train, you know, things I could never do. Um, but they always appear to geeks as being idiots because they, they've just, they're just so far outside of their, their area of expertise. And I think one of the things that, you know, Apple has really done something about is it, further down the piece I talk about, um, what is it that is this person's real work, right? Now, if, you, if you're a nurse, your real work is to heal a patient. It's not to, um, you know, fill in a computer form about a patient's health. Yeah. You know, your work is to get them better, 
right? And the computers can get the heck out of the way. The more we can do that, the more we can actually get people better, you know? Yeah. Right. And you think about all the people who have had to develop computer skills completely unrelated to what it is they want to do in the world. They don't want to be a computer operator and then occasionally teach children. They want to just teach children. Right? It's very interesting. Um, they've had to learn so many of those skills. Yeah, and it's interesting thinking, you know, projecting that out in the future in 50 years. Will computers be like things we think about as much as we think about toasters? You know, John Syracuse accepted, you know. The, uh, do do we, are computers just things we use to get through our day and, and heal people with cancer? Or are they things that we still need to, you know, do all these things? Will the Mac power users even be necessary? Because... Maybe none of this stuff matters. It's all it's all done for you. It's it's an interesting future. Yeah, I mean, I I think I I try not to be dismissive of things, but I have I have certainly been in the past, and I've tried to learn from from these experiences. But um, to me, Google Glass is very interesting. A lot of people are just making ridiculous fun of Google Glass right now because the 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 frame of the glasses looks a bit darky and a bit weird. But yeah, but I, we're, we're geeks. We're supposed know, to like that. Well, exactly. You know, this is when did we all get so stylish? You know, um, but I, I think there's, you know, just because the first generation. I mean, how weird did the first mobile phone look? I mean, I remember getting my first mobile phone in 1994 and being really self conscious about pulling that out in public and talking on the phone. Yeah. And today, you wouldn't even think twice about that. Yeah. You know, and and I think that you know. Can we bet that technology will get smaller? Yes. We can bet it will get cheaper. Yes. We can bet that it will get faster and more capable and more power efficient over time. We know that all of those things are going to happen. So given that we can build Google Glasses that look like just a little slightly fatter version of your glasses right now, what can we do with that in 5, 10, or 15 years' time? Yeah. You know? I mean, keep your eye on that one. I think that's got legs. Yeah, everybody's talking about this Google Glasses demo. And that's where the guy jumped out of a plane and, you know, rode a bike and rappelled down Moscone. And I thought they really missed the point with that demo because it felt to me like it was just, well, you know, you get one of those cameras and stick it on your helmet. It's like a helmet cam. And mm-hmm. yeah. I think Google Glasses is about much more. I'm not even sure what it is about. You know, I'm not even sure Google knows because I think what they said at Google I.O. pretty much was, okay, we're going to give some of these to smart people and see what you guys can do with them. Uh, or you know, people with fifteen hundred dollars. <laughs> but the uh, yeah, yeah. But the um, but I I'm not sure anybody really knows where this is going. But I, I agree with you that that could be something. It's one of these things, you know, the, the technology doesn't get interesting until the technology is actually boring, right? And to me, nowadays, like a new iPhone is not that exciting. Okay, it'll be fun to see what it's got and so on, and when can I get one? But What's interesting to me now is the way that people are changing their behavior because smartphones exist. Yeah, you know, and I'm you know, th- I'm thinking about it as I sit here talking to you. I actually signed up for it. There's a new technology. Everybody's excited. A little box you put in front of your Mac, and it gives you kind of the the whole idea of you know manipulating the screen with your hands. The Verge did a really mm-hmm. nice interview with the developer on this, and I'm completely drawing a blank. This is why we need to do a live uh, show because someone leap would, motion, isn't it? What? Is it called leap motion? Is that the thing? I think that might be it. Yeah, but it's like it's 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 amazing. Yes, leap motion. Mm-hmm. Let's see, Fraser's got it together, not me. <laughs> but have you looked at this? I mean, this is interesting. I have. Yeah, it is interesting. I, it'll be interesting to see 
if they can overcome the fatigue problem. You know, I think one of the things that I thought was interesting with Google Glass was that that looks like something you could wear all day and be very comfortable. Leap motion, I, I, I'm not yet that clear on whether, um, you know, I mean, it's very minority report, but the background story to the, that senior minority report is they had to stop filming every 10 minutes to give Tom Cruise's arms a rest. Oh, really? tired. I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. yeah, apparently that's true. Um, and I, I think um, I still have my questions about that in terms of, you know, the human arm doesn't really work very well when held out in front of you for a long time. Um, but it's certainly a very compelling technology. And whether that can then be, you know, pivoted into something much more naturalistic, which is not just sitting at a desk with your hands out all the time, but maybe you walk up to something built into your wall and you just wave at that. Maybe that's a different thing. You in, know? in the future, you'll recognize information workers not by their RSI problems, but by their biceps. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, weightlifters. Yeah, and the skinny legs. And and some of this 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 brave new world is scary to some of us who have been around for a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I consider myself a very forward thinking person. You know, I'm a Mac power user. I'm a technology person, and I want to embrace the new technology. Wait, you're you're going to take my file system away from me? Hang on, don't do that. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. I'm I'm one of these people who like I, I like to push things much further than they really should be pushed. Um, and like, you know, I've been one of the first people to deploy iPad on mass, you know, and now in the situation where I'm, we might be an iPad exclusive school within a year or two years, you know, that's, um, I'm deliberately pushing that as hard as I can because I think that's the way things are going. Um, but I deal with this all the time when I talk to other schools, you know, people are saying, well, you know, it's funny when the conversations that I've had over the past two years, the first conversation I had was, well, you know, Fraser, the, the iPad's surely not a real computer. Why not? Well, it doesn't run Office, you know, or it doesn't have a keyboard or whatever. And I think we're past that conversation now. Then the next conversation I had in 2011 was, well, Fraser, a, an electronic book is not a real book. Well, why not? Well, it doesn't smell like a real book, okay, um, or whatever. And I think what we're seeing with, with um, Amazon's numbers and the Kindle and stuff and, and the sales of ebooks is that um, society believes otherwise that you know an electronic book is a very valuable thing in its own right. And but the conversation I'm having today is not about the computer or the book, but it's actually about the things that you make on the computer. So now I go to schools and they say, "Well, Fraser, you know that iPad band video you just showed is very fun, but that's not a real piece of music," you know. Uh, I showed a video of us, you know, some of my colleagues and I playing iPads. And the first Q- question I got in Q&A was, uh, how do you, would you use it for real music? And my answer was, that was real music. Right? And then we had a big fight <laughs> in that Q&A session about, well, what is real music? And a guy goes, well, I wouldn't pay to watch people play iPads on, on stage. To which I said, but millions of people around the world do pay to essentially listen to computers playing music on the stage. Now, they dress up the stage in a different way, so it doesn't just look like a guy sitting with a black iPad. But effectively, that's what it is, is that a lot of commercial pop music today is A, very popular, and B, a lot of it's driven by computers, even in live performance. Um, And I think um, there are people, both in education and outside education, who are very, um, very apprehensive about the way the world is going. Um, 
I'm I'm not always convinced they're apprehensive for correct reasons. Um, I, I think often um, there's a lot of tradition goes around, uh, edu- particularly education. I mean, you talk to parents that they just what they want for their kids is basically exactly what they had in school as well, um, in in large part. But there's lots of things in education that have been bypassed by the way the world works. Now, handwriting is a good example, right? You know, we we still assess exams by written papers. Is that is that a correct assessment? You know, uh, people often ask me, you know, can you prove that if we buy iPads for the school that we'll do better in, in our um, standardized tests? And the answer is no, I can't because your standardized test doesn't measure anything that you do with an iPad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, your standardized test measures a little bit of problem solving and a lot of memorization. And whose job in the world today is... Um, I will memorize a lot of stuff, then I'll go into a room by myself, disconnect from the network, and I will write down for several hours everything that I know. I mean, that's not a common workflow in most situations today, you know. Um, But change is hard, you know. Change is hard, and, you know, my my concern uh, that I've written about several times on my blog with education is that if we take 10 years to react to a change that happens outside of education, what does that mean for all the kids who go through the education system while we're enacting that change? You know, generations have grown up. You know, people often talk now about, well, the, today's kids are very digital and all this kind of stuff. Well, actually, the kids who were brought up digital are now at university. They're, you're actually now teaching the children of the first generation of digital kids. Yeah. And that's my those, those people are me, right? I'm 33, two kids in, in primary education now, and it's not my children that should have had this. It's me that should have had it. Yeah, and this is why I'm so kind of uh, I try not to be aggressive about it, but I'm certainly very uh, forceful about it. Is that we we actually we missed a generation. We should have been doing this 15 years ago. And for various reasons, we didn't do it. Um, but we can't allow that to happen again, like for my children. And the thing about it is that when the parents are people like me, those that generation of parents are not going to accept the current state of play in, in schools with technology. Because the parents are people who have brought, were brought up with the internet and have spent their whole careers working on the web and with email and smartphones and laptops and now tablets and, and e-books and so on. The parents will demand change, and the schools are going to have to get on board with that, no matter what. Well, I think that is a a great place to finish this interview because I uh, I agree with you so much. And technology really is the future. And if we don't figure a way to bring our kids into this in a way that they can have useful skills, um, we're doing them a great disservice. Yeah, it's it's a very exciting time to be a student. Part of me wishes I could go back and do it all over again. It is, it is. And we have even talked about things like iTunes U and iBooks Author. I mean, I know, David, you've done some work with iBooks Author, and I love your book. Oh, do you? Uh, we've been, Thank you. We've been doing some stuff with it as well, and uh, I, I think both the, the fact that you can put those tools, but iBooks Author, I look at it as like keynote for books. Yeah, you know, that's, that's li- how I explain it bit, to people. A little bit of effort gets you a really nice result. Some substantial effort gets you an amazing result. And what you can do now with iTunes U, I mean, that's a whole show in itself. At some point, is uh, um, the power that is now in iTunes U. We're actually looking, our whole school next year 
all the secondary exam grade courses will run through iTunes U. Okay, so then I don't want to stop now. I want to talk about that. Okay, so <laughs> well, um, I was going to okay. say, or we could have you back next year and do a whole Over show time. on iTunes. You, <laughs> no, I, I think that's a good idea too. But just just for a little bit, you know, everybody, they've hung in this long. We can take another ten minutes. Um, tell me about how you're deploying books and and those course materials now. Yeah, um, we're not doing a whole lot with electronic books just yet. Uh, we're in a slightly funny position in Scotland right now in that our curriculum is just in the process of feeding through changes all the way up to secondary schools. So we're still dealing with a lot of old materials and new materials are currently being made for these new courses. Um, but what we are doing is we've got a lot of PDF documents that go out to kids and, and other kinds of things. And up till now in our deployment, we've mostly been using email for that. Um, and occasionally um, going up to Dropbox for things that are just too big to go on an email. Um, but what we always try and do is we try and, um, I often in my deployment, I, I like to let people try different things. So I've got different teachers using different technologies right now. And then once we've had that experience, I try and extract from that what are the essential parts. And the essential part is um, content distribution to the pupils and assignment distribution. Those two things, and also assignment submission, but that's still working fine by email, so we're going to leave that there for now. But what we're going to do with iTunes U is we're going to replace um, assignment setting by email and document distribution by email with assignment setting through iTunes U and document distribution through iTunes U as well. Um, so we're not necessarily going to make ourselves a whole lot of... Um, we're not writing textbooks, each of us writing a textbook, but I think one of the things about iTunes, uh, iBooks Author, sorry, is that I'm trying to get across to people that I talk to all the time that you can use that for something much shorter than a whole textbook. Yeah, you could just do a chapter on on a war yeah. for a history class. Yeah, we've done ten page things in iBooks Author and set them out. You know. Uh, yeah. Well, that's I'm really I'm really pleased to hear that because I think that iBooks Author got a bum rap when it first came out. I think a lot of people said, "Well, you know, it's not good enough." And uh, having written a book in it and about to release another book in it, it's I think it's really remarkable. Um, well, yeah, I, I think when Apple did their education event, they made a big play about the commercial textbooks that were available through in that iBooks Author format. And yes, they are very nice. But I think the real sleeper hits in that announcement were the fact that iBooks Author is free and all the things they did for iTunes U. Uh, the biggest thing in that announcement was iTunes U, in my opinion. But if you look at a lot of the um, attitude surveys to technology and education, um, when you ask people, what are you going to do with a tablet computer in the classroom? Students and teachers have lots of very varied ideas, but school administrators and parents the number one thing they say in most surveys is uh, textbooks, right? Yeah. Now, who pays for technology in the classroom? It's school administrators and it's parents. And I, I slightly think that um, the focus on textbooks in that event was a real uh, sort of dog whistle to these people who are having to fund iPad programs in schools to say, you guys love your textbook, here's your textbook. Yeah. Right? But in the background, they're like, teachers, by the way, there's this amazing thing here called iBooks Author. Uh, go ahead and do something with that, you know, um, and putting that in the hands of teachers, I think is going to be incredibly powerful. Well, since I released the paperless book, I've received many emails from teachers who are doing just that. They're going, you know, they're going gorilla on this thing and they're putting yeah. out their own materials to their kids and they are loving it. So I, I'm very interested in that subject. I think it's, 
I think we have a quiet revolution on our hands. Oh yeah. Yeah. If I was a textbook author or textbook publisher, I would be nervous right now. Apart from the massive structures in the US that keep them in business yeah. because of all the politics that are in textbooks. Don't give me a start. In the, in the, yeah, well, that's a whole, <laughs> it's a whole philosophy show in itself. But, you know, in, in the rest of the world where the textbook is not so politicized and, and fetishized as it is in the US, um, I'm, I'm, as a school teacher, I'm looking going, well, do I really want that textbook? I could knock something up over the weekend that would be as good as that book. Yeah. Probably or better. better. Yeah. And it would be a lot more fun to use. Yeah, and, and it would be integrated with my iTunes U course, and then you start to build up a nice ecosystem and the whole bit. Um, and yeah, uh, it's very tempting to just pile right in there. Okay, so I'm just going to say right now, Fraser, so long as you're willing, this is not going to be our only interview with you. I'm, uh, okay. I'm looking forward to having you back, uh, hopefully next year, to talk about this, because you're going to have learned a bunch more, and this iTunes U thing is, is exciting. And I guess just to give a, a basic overview, and, and correct me where I'm wrong, yeah iTunes U now makes it very easy for you to publish educational materials. And this can mm-hmm. include PDFs or a video of your lecture or your slide deck. And it sounds to me like you guys are getting ready to use it to publish some of your course materials. Yeah. The, the, the big change that happened in iTunes U um, in January was that, well, firstly, uh, iTunes U always used to be just this area of the iTunes store where you could download a playlist of videos. In January, they released an app but they'd also released a new structure in the store called a course. Now the, the playlist of videos was called a collection and a course now has all of those, all of that stuff as well, but it also has um, a series of posts in the course and the posts are basically the individual lessons. Um, and you can actually follow the, the progression of learning through that course. Whereas with the videos, it was very much, you know, I'm just looking at all these lectures, but what am I supposed to learn from that? Whereas now with the course, you can have, here's a post, you can attach to the post an assignment, and the assignment can have some materials. And materials can be, like you said, PDF documents or videos, but also, crucially, you can link to anything on an Apple storefront. So you can link to a commercial ebook, you can link to a, a, a music track, a video, uh, an audio book, you can connect to other pieces of material in the iTunes you system um, and also apps right so you can now make apps part of your course material as well um, and they can all be downloaded and installed straight from the course and so the kids uh, will subscribe at the beginning of the year and then yeah. their materials will just come down every week now here's the ninja trick right all right I need when that. when <laughs> when you 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 can have two kinds of course there's a, a, a um self-paced course which is a complete course that you just post for md to follow at any time and then there's an in-session course and an in-session course is one that has a defined start date and end date and is updated um alongside some actual teaching that's happening in a class somewhere now that's the kind of one you're going to use in most schools but the beauty of it is when i as a teacher post something to my in-session course every ipad and every iphone in the world that subscribed to that course gets a push notification so every time i set homework all of my kids' uh, iPads will ping up and say, hey, there's new homework for your computing course. Here's the extra part. If I send the link to that course home to parents who have an iPhone, then when I set their children homework, they get a notification. Right? Mm. And this is something this is something schools have been want have been struggling with for years is parents wanting to be notified about when their children get homework. No more what? of and this. What? what are you supposed to be doing tonight? Nothing. Yeah. If I was yeah. a student, I would hate that. 
Ah, well, <laughs> that's a good sign. Yeah, it is actually. Um, but but you know, it, it takes that takes another burden off the parent or off the teachers to do that uh, second notification, if you like. Um, so I'm really looking forward to using that this year, and uh, I think it's going to be incredibly powerful. And we're also trying to use it to expand the range of courses that are available in the school as well, um, because again, you know, in disruption. You compete with non-consumption first, yeah. and then you compete with consumption. Uh, so for the courses that we don't offer as a taught course in school, we're going to look at having some iTunes U courses developed so that kids could perhaps self-study certain courses at certain parts of their, of their education or, as well. I could see this for extracurriculars or electives mm-hmm. or, or other mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah, I'm also probably going to be doing a, a presentation skills master class at some point for some of our students. Um and I think the way we'll do that is we'll actually run most of it through iTunes U and then have occasional classes in school as well. That is that's very interesting, Fraser. All right. We're gonna we're gonna talk to you again next year then. And uh, so I look forward take to notes that. for us. <laughs> and uh, in, in the, the meantime, for all of the educators listening, please uh, give Fraser some contact if you need any of his help. Uh, so I'm giving away your services, Fraser. <laughs> Thank you. You can also hire him if you're trying to implement mm-hmm. a system, and I think this would be the guy to talk to. And Fraser's got some great apps we're going to link to in the show notes. You also are on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle again? It's just Fraser Spears. Okay. And um, and also, for anybody listening to this, please go read that Future Proof post. I think it's one of the smartest things written on the Internet in a long time. So yeah. please do that. Thank you. Yeah, you'll be able to find links to everything that we talked about in this show and in all of our shows over on our website at MacPowerUsers.com or on the 5x5 site at 5x5.tv slash MPU. And you can also send us email to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. Yeah, and don't forget to send us your ScanSnap haikus. Make sure that you put ScanSnap haiku in the subject line, and uh, we'll pick some winners from there. And thanks to Hover, ScanSnap, and Pixelmator for sponsoring the show today. Yeah. And uh, next show, we're going to talk about, uh, let's see, our iPads. And it's going to be iPad Productivity Kit is going to be the topic of that show. We're going to talk about what are the apps that we use on our iPads to get work done. So I think that, that'll be an exciting one. Yeah, it's a nice bookend for the show as well, I think. Yeah. So we look forward to it. Uh, thanks so much, Fraser, for it's so inspirational to hear. Well, thank you. It's, it's really been a pleasure. Yeah. yeah. And just keep it up, man. Keep fighting the battle for us. Okay. I mean, I think the more success this has at your school and the people you're working with, the more likely it is to go mainstream. And and I think yeah. you're right. This needs to happen. Yeah. I what the way I look at it, I all I can do is I can make the best thing that I can make and then tell you honestly about it, what worked and what didn't. And if that's inspirational to people, that's an honor for me. Um, and if that inspires people to do things, all the better. But I can't force anyone to do it. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. Thank you, man. 